0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 127, Melatine. Last time, we followed John Kurkuas, the empire's commander-in-chief, as he led a series of raids into Armenia. His targets were the Arab settlements in the mountains, and the success of these attacks caused serious terror for the frightened inhabitants. Though the Romans had come this way before, there had always been the prospect of help being sent from Baghdad to prevent cities from actually being captured. The past six years had made it clear that little help was available. The prospect of actual conquest now sent a chill down many spines. Despite these new offensive maneuvers, the Roman army still pursued indirect guerrilla tactics as they closed in on the city of Malatine. Though they'd forced their way into the city a few years earlier, they'd been unable to hold it, and in 931 they removed the garrison they'd installed there after troops from Mesopotamia appeared on the horizon. So John encouraged the local soldiers to return to the methods they'd been employing for decades. They occupied forts in the mountains around Melitene and began picking off isolated trade caravans or unfortunate peasants. Melias, the Stratikos of Lycandus, was the master of this. He'd covered his territory with castles at every strategic point, ensuring that no one moved through his realm without his notice. In 932, John led his army through the mountains and captured the last few forts which supported Melitene. The city was now all but surrounded by Roman troops. That summer, he assaulted the city's agricultural base. Crops were burnt, vineyards dug up, and animals stolen. The poor peasants fled behind the walls and watched in horror. That winter, the small garrisons in the surrounding mountains would descend without warning to terrorize the Arab farmers as they attempted to restore their livelihood. It's a pitiable state, but of course, it's one that Byzantine farmers had lived through for 300 years. There's certainly geopolitical irony in the plight of Melatine. It had grown in prominence under Islamic rule, as you would expect of a launchpad for the annual jihad. It had fine buildings and mosques, and a sizable dependent population who grew crops outside the walls. Their pleasant fruit trees enjoyed a wider reputation. But, of course, Melatine grew fat as Roman towns across the border withered. Anatolian peasants were forced to uproot themselves and gather around rocky outcroppings and lonely peaks to find safety. Like the ascetic monks who they revered, the Byzantines had grown lean and self-sufficient. Their homes looked bare, but their teeth had grown sharp. Now that the support of Baghdad was pulled away, Melatine was suddenly exposed as hopelessly ill-prepared for border warfare. The Romans had underground storehouses, warning beacons, and fortresses dotting the landscape. When the enemy appeared, they had systems in place to respond. Melatine had nothing to fall back on. Until you reached the next town, there was nothing but desolate mountain paths. When John's men appeared, the farmers poured into the city, consuming its reserves as they watched their harvest go up in flames. The next year, the authorities would have to import food, further reducing their resources. In this harsh, fragmented world, those prepared to sacrifice and live on little had the best chance of success. Melatine's lush surroundings condemned it to failure. The city's only hope was that the distant governors of Mesopotamia or Azerbaijan might assist them, but in 934, circumstances conspired to leave them isolated at just the wrong moment. Over in Iraq... Baghdad was becoming ungovernable. As we discussed at the end of the century, the loss of Iran and Egypt stripped it of the resources which had made it a superpower. And by now, Iraq itself was in chaos. Its food supplies were ruined, its Bedouin tribes were in revolt. The mercenary troops hoovered up all the available cash, and no one seemed to be able to bring the warring factions together. And yet the city was still huge and wealthy. It remained the centre of the Islamic world. No one was yet willing to abandon it and start again elsewhere. The result was that the elites of the surrounding areas were all sucked in, believing that they might be able to seize power and restore order. Yet this very competition ensured that no one could that summer, the caliph al kahir was overthrown, sparking another melee. No help would come to melatine just as John Corcuas appeared over the horizon with a giant army. 50,000 men, according to one source, and though that number is unlikely, we can assume that he was backed by the full weight of the themes and the Tachmata and that they were a desperate sight for those behind the walls. The Romans surrounded the city and prepared to starve it into submission. With so many people fleeing inside, supplies quickly started running out, and with no hope of escape, the emir surrendered on the 19th of May. Melitene had been taken by the Arabs as early as the 640s, though it wasn't until the 650s that it was properly garrisoned. 280 years later, it was back in Roman hands. Romanus and John had discussed the potential fate of the city. Its location was a key connection point for routes through the mountains. Once it was secure... Roman forces could launch themselves at the remaining emirates in the mountains, or south into Syria, or southwest into Cilicia. Not to mention the power this projected into Armenia, whose more haughty princes might now seek the friendship of Constantinople. Clearly, just installing a garrison was not going to be enough to ensure its safety. So Korkuas announced that the city would be home only to Christians from now on. This would send a clear signal to the surrounding cities about what the empire intended, and in time provide a loyal population who could man the walls themselves if trouble came their way. However, the intention of this announcement was not to evict the entire current population the Romans could not magic up thousands of new inhabitants. It was assumed that many peasants would simply accept this change. They would at least visibly abandon their Islamic faith and follow Christian rules. And this is what happened. Anyone who wanted to leave was given safe conduct south toward the caliphate, and a sizable minority did. But the majority stayed... Their lives were here. Their farms were here. We have no more detail on their Christian conversion, but there would be no more mosques available in the city, only churches to serve their spiritual needs. New colonists would be invited in, Roman and Armenian alike, and then eventually Syrian Christians would be offered the chance to migrate. The Byzantines wanted to change the character of life in the mountains for good. Romanus also had to consider whose authority the new land would come under. All the recently created themes were war-ravaged mountainous places. It didn't seem to matter too much if their new commander was an independent-minded Armenian like Melius. But Melatine was different. Not only was it strategically vital, but it was prosperous. Its plain was fertile, and trade flowed through its gates. The emperor didn't want another magnate to sprout up in the city and turn it into his own private fiefdom. The solution was simple. The whole area was turned into an imperial estate. Officials from the palace would be sent to manage its affairs... They would deal with those who'd remained, and they would be in charge of selling off or renting out all the land abandoned by the Muslims who'd left. This way, tax revenue and new recruits would be accountable directly to the emperor's men. It was a decision which sent a message to the conquest army as well. Enjoy your plunder and spend it at home because new acquisitions will benefit the government, not you. This seemed fair enough, because of course, tracts of land in the border themes would now grow in value. After all, they were no longer, strictly speaking, frontier territory. The new theme of Melatine would be the front line, and the fields behind them would be raided less often. Suddenly... Patches of grass that had known only the hooves of passing warbands for the past three centuries could be planted with crops. It's worth saying, though, that this decision could have been very unpopular with the army now camping at Melatine. But thanks to the harmonious relationship between John and Romanus, things went smoothly. We don't know why the two men got on so well, but often the most successful periods of Roman history are when the emperor and his senior general are happily on the same page. That same year, John's forces rolled up to nearby Samosata and sacked it again. The reason the Byzantines kept targeting it was that it guarded the northernmost point at which the Euphrates River could be crossed. The soggy conditions may explain why it was so seemingly easy to capture and also why the Byzantines did not yet garrison it themselves. They wanted to secure Melatine first. And that's what corcuas spent the next three years doing. The administration of the new theme had to be organized and the city had to be secured against counterattacks. The fall of Melitene was front-page news across the Byzantine, Islamic, and Armenian worlds. The refugees who brought the news into the caliphate were of one voice. They took our land. They insisted we convert. You will be next. This threat resonated in the lands of northern Syria and northern Mesopotamia, or Iraq, These were, after all, the territories that lay in the shadow of the Armenian mountains. If the Romans gained control of the highlands, then there would be nothing stopping them from descending on the wealthy cities of the area. The men in charge of these lands were the Hamdanid family. So, let's introduce them. The Hamdanids were members of the Banu Taglib tribe, who traced their roots back to pre-Islamic times. They'd been the dominant Arab Bedouin group in northern Mesopotamia for the past few centuries. The Hamdanids were one of the most powerful families within the tribe, and had used the last century of chaos to establish a power base for themselves. They'd seized control of the city of Mosul in northern Iraq and some key fortresses in the foothills nearby. Rather like Byzantine landed magnates, these wide holdings and local support maintained the family in power. Despite being on the losing side of several civil wars, new caliphs could not get rid of them. They were too locally entrenched... Each new commander of Baghdad had a greater need for their support than for their destruction. By the 920s, two brothers had become the leading lights of the family. Running their base in Mosul was Abu Mohammed, better known to us by his honorific title, Nasser ad meaning Defender of the Dynasty. This was a little like being Stratikos of the Anatolicon, because the dynasty in this case was the Abbasid dynasty. This title came with a salary and responsibility for governing northern Mesopotamia. It's his brother, though, who will be our main focus. His name was Ali, but he is also better known by the title Seif-Utola, Sword of the Dynasty. And as the name implies, he was a brilliant young military officer who'd led troops in various civil wars of the period. Having failed to establish themselves at Baghdad, the brothers spent the years leading up to the conquest of Melitene focusing on local politics. With Nasser in command of Mosul, Saif turned west to carve out a kingdom of his own. He set off on a series of campaigns to bring the local Bedouin to heel, and in the process he also captured the major cities of the area, Aleppo, Antioch, Homs, and what the Romans still knew as Martyropolis. These places had slipped from central control. Several of them, including the towns of Cilicia, had looked south to the new rulers of Egypt for support, and this made sense for coastal towns, as the Egyptian fleet could bring them into its network. However, Seyfurdola's campaigns made it clear that he would be their new master. This region had a long history as the defensive network and recruitment ground for the annual raids into Byzantium. The local culture supported jihad and was alarmed by news of a Byzantine resurgence. Saif then had to take up the cause. He had to fight to prevent further Roman encroachment, both for self-preservation and to win domestic political approval. It's important to understand, though, that the house of war was not really Saif's burning ambition. The Hamdanid brothers like all the ambitious elites of the central Middle East, still dreamt of ruling Baghdad, or at least being the right-hand man to a caliph. This lack of focus on the frontier was a gift to the Byzantines and would slowly disable Islamic attempts to stop them. Returning to the narrative then, The Hamdanids could do nothing to aid Melatine as it fell in 934. They were too worried about events in Baghdad. They managed to secure renewed salaries from the new commander of the faithful, but the Hamdanids then fell out in a serious way with one of the other leading groups of the Banu Taklib. In order to maintain their power, the Hamdanids, like most other rulers in the Islamic world, had hired foreign soldiers. Dalamite infantry, Sudanese spearmen, and of course, Turkish horse archers. With news that Baghdad would continue to subsidize this foreign army, the Banu Habib tribe decided to abandon the Hamdanid realm. Across the caliphate, the Bedouin Arabs were resentful of the power and influence of these mercenary troops. It was the Arabs who'd created this new world, and now its fruits were being eaten by others. I mentioned at the end of the century that one group of nomadic raiders actually sacked Mecca and Medina, and that was four years before Melateen fell. The Banu Habib grazed lands near Nisbis at the old Roman Sasanid border, and sick of their subservience to the Hamdanids and their imported army, they packed their bags and migrated north, offering their services to the Byzantines. Given that the Taclibi tribes had been present since before Islam, it's possible that some of their number were still Christian but it seems equally possible that they saw a better life on the other side of the border and accepted the change of religion as part of the bargain. John Corcuas was only too pleased to settle the 10,000 or so new recruits into the theme of Melatine, registering them on the military rolls. Though this was a double blow, it did free safe from immediate local opposition to his rule the Sword of the Dynasty, began his campaigns in the mountains in 938. He took his new army north to Melatine and captured one of the key forts which supported it. Predictably, Korkuas marched to retrieve it and Safe ambushed his advanced guard, who quickly retreated in the face of far stiffer resistance than they were used to facing. Melatine itself was not in danger, though. In 939, the garrison at Theodosiopolis was booted out by the population with Safe's support. And in 940, Saif made his biggest move yet. He marched to Lake Van, installing garrisons in key forts and capturing one which John had taken years before. He then called the local emirs and Armenian princes to come and meet him. They arrived and he asked them to submit to his authority, which they did. Now, these were not the Armenian princes of the north and west who were taking Roman gold, but those of the south and east who lived closer to the lake. They'd spent two centuries bowing to representatives of the caliph, which safe technically was. As we discussed last episode, the Armenian princes enjoyed their independence. They did not see the advance of the Christian Romans as much better than the Muslims they'd already dealt with. If Saif had campaigned in strength every year, then he could have demanded that they fight with him. An anti-Roman coalition would have been hard to sustain, given the greater resources of Byzantium, but this was surely the only way that Saif could have stopped their advance. However, later that year, yet another caliph fell from his perch. Nasser sent word, and he and Seif headed to Baghdad to try and stop the Persian Bayids from taking control of the city. This distraction told the princes of Armenia and the emirs around Lake Van what they needed to know. There was only one power fully committed to the region, and it was the Romans. Without control of the mountain passes, the Byzantine army would be almost impossible to stop. By prioritizing Baghdad, Saif essentially conceded control of the highway to his realm. Though he would continue to battle them for the foreseeable future, modern historians suspect that this was the moment when the contest was really over. Next time, with Safe absent, John Kurkuas will lead the most successful raid on the Caliphate for centuries, presenting the aging Emperor Romanus with a very special Christian triumph. Speaking of Romanus Le Capinos, it's been a little while since we checked in with the palace and events in the West. In 932, Romanus's eldest son, Christopher, died from an illness. The emperor was deeply saddened, of course, but it was the dynastic implication that most interests us. Christopher had been elevated in precedence above Constantine VII, but now he was gone. For whatever reason, Romanus did not hasten to elevate his two younger sons above their older Brother in law. This would be critical when the succession came. The following year, the patriarch passed away, which meant that it was time for Romanus's youngest boy, Theophylact, to take his place. We are told that the 16 year old was not mature enough for this responsibility. Big surprise. Uh, not only in view of his youth, though, but because his true passion was horse-riding. Still, the unbecoming sight of a teenage patriarch was not objected to enough to stop his elevation. Romanus invited papal legates to perform the ceremony to ensure that Rome would have no objections. And Delighting in the chance to stand in ceremony above a Byzantine patriarch, the legates did the honours and the church was shut down as a source of opposition to the Lekopinae for the time being. In 934, while the bulk of the army were conquering Melatine, the Magyars raided Thrace. From their new home on the Hungarian plain, the steppe riders were always likely to start making a nuisance of themselves. They had to cross through Bulgaria on the way, of course, but their real target was the riches of Romania. The emperor's chief minister, Theophanes led troops out to meet them, but he had no intention of fighting. He offered them a handsome bribe to turn around and go home, which they did. They'll be back, though. A naval mission was also dispatched the next year to Italy, I don't want to bog you down with the minutiae of events in Longobardia and Calabria, as nothing vital has changed. However, the Lombard Prince of Capua had captured various bits of Byzantine territory, and the goal of this small armada was to persuade him to go home. Eventually, a deal was struck with Hugh of Provence, the new king in North Italy. Hugh was happy to work with the Byzantines, and he sent troops to slap the Lombards down. In exchange, he wanted the Roman navy to assist him in battling Arab pirates, which they did. To cement this alliance, Romanus proposed another imperial marriage, things having worked out so well with Bulgaria. Awkwardly, Hugh did not have a legitimate daughter, but sent young Bertha, who he'd had outside of marriage. Apparently, this was good enough for Romanus, who arranged for her to marry his grandson, Romanus II, and she arrived in 944 to be betrothed, though both were still under 10 years old. Uh, She would thus be able to receive a proper Roman education before the wedding. Sadly, she would die about five years later, before it could take place, but the peace in Italy would hold. Next time, more victories in the East seem to provide Romanus' reign with a great send-off. However, his squabbling family will battle over the succession, with even the aging emperor in the firing line. In two weeks' time, it will be the fundraising narrative episode. It's been 19 months and 51 episodes since I last asked you to support me in this way. I hope you'll agree that $7 is a bargain for all that work, though you're welcome to send a little more. If you're interested in purchasing a subscription, so that that episode will just appear in your feed, head on over to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and look for sale instructions in the top right-hand corner. An annual sub costs $42, $42 but gives you access to all 11 episodes I've produced already, plus at least six more in the next 12 months. The podcast is now 90% of how I make a living, if not more, so I really do need your support.